0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to see you guys. If you have a Bible or you have a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. To that passage we just read. Matthew chapter 3. And the reason that you are turning to the book of Matthew is because today we are beginning a new series or maybe even something a little bit bigger than a series through the entire book of Matthew. In the Bible. Now that might make some of you ask if you're paying attention, okay then why are we starting in chapter 3? Because that's not how numbers work if we're covering the whole book. Understood? I'm gonna get to that here in just a bit but first I wanted to just unpack a little bit about why we wanted to teach all the way through a book like Matthew in the Bible. So I want to talk about why and I want to talk about how. First let's talk about why study a book like Matthew. The first reason for it is relatively simple and straightforward. The book of Matthew is about Jesus and Jesus is a pretty big deal to us around here at City Church. That's the short reason why. The first part of our vision statement, the statement that describes why we exist as a church in the first place is that we are Jesus-centered, meaning that everything we are and everything that we do as a church finds its basis and motivation in the person and work of Jesus. And there are four books in our Bible that pretty much exclusively focus on the life and ministry of Jesus and Matthew is one of those books. So we wanted to spend some time covering Matthew. Matthew, But the second more specific reason for studying Matthew right now at this point in time is this. Uh, it probably goes without saying that there's a lot of uncertainty in our world right now. Does anybody feel that just a little bit right now? Just a little bit of uncertainty. Truth be told, we don't know what life is going to look like this fall or for the next year or for the next two years. There is a worldwide pandemic that might be over soon or might be over in two plus years. We don't really know. Uh, Just in the last week, in the last seven days, there has been an earthquake in North Carolina and a hurricane in Chicago. That's real. You can Google that. There was some type of hurricane in Chicago and perhaps even most seriously out of all of it is that we don't know if we're going to have a college football season or not. We don't know yet. It could be canceled, might not be canceled. I sure hope not. Uh, In summary, if 2020, the year 2020 was an emoji, I think it would be this one. Because nobody knows what life is going to look like in the immediate future. So we figure with there being so much uncertainty in our world flying around right now, why not spend an extended amount of time talking about the most certain, the most tried and true things in the universe, and that's Jesus and his kingdom. So that's what we're going to do for the next little while. Which all brings us to how we're going to go about studying the book of Matthew, Because if you know anything about the book of Matthew and the Bible, it is a long book, like very long. It ties with the book of Acts for the most number of chapters in a New Testament book, 28 chapters to be exact. Matthew contains 1,071 verses by the end of the book, which would make it the longest book of the Bible that we have studied together on Sundays by about 900 verses or so. So here's how we're going to go about studying the book of Matthew together. We are going to study Matthew in installments. Matthew is conveniently divided up into a handful of what we might call movements. And in each of these movements, the focus of the book of Matthew shifts just a little bit. And so rather than start Matthew today and go straight through it for like two years without stopping... We're going to do one of those sections of Matthew at a time. So we'll do a little bit of Matthew and then maybe another series. And then we'll hop back into Matthew, then maybe do another series or two, back into Matthew, so on and so forth. That's how we're going to plan to tackle it, and I think doing it that way will sort of afford us an opportunity to to stop and to digest some of the things that we're learning in Matthew, and it also sort of gives us the opportunity to uh, step aside and cover things that might be timely or relevant to our church family that aren't necessarily brought up in the book of Matthew in the meantime. So, think of this less as a series through the book of Matthew and more like a whole lot of different series that eventually take us all the way through the book. That's the plan, of studying the Gospel of Matthew. Now, all that said, even though each movement of the book of Matthew does focus on a slightly different idea, there is one idea that runs through the entire book. And that's a little something called the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven or just the kingdom. And I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about what the kingdom of God is because understanding the kingdom of God is massively important to understanding the book of Matthew as a whole because the kingdom is sort of the backdrop for everything that happens and everything that gets said and talked about. And that, in part, is why we are starting in chapter 3 of Matthew, because chapter 3 is the first time in the book that this idea of kingdom gets mentioned explicitly. So the first two chapters of the book, if you know anything about Matthew, are largely about Jesus' birth, uh, sort of the events surrounding our traditional Christmas and Nativity story. So we're going to save those two chapters to cover one year right around Christmas, And instead, we're going to start in chapter 3, where we first hear about this idea of the kingdom of God. So before we get into our passage, let's try to wrap our minds around what the kingdom of God is. What is meant by that term when it gets brought up in the book of Matthew? Well, for starters, to have a kingdom, you first need a what? Anybody want to take a guess? a king. You guys are nailing this so far. Way to go. You first need a king if you're going to have a kingdom. And according to the book of Matthew, that king is who? Are you on a roll? You want to try another one? Jesus. It's always a safe guess when you're in church just to throw out the name Jesus. If no other reason, people will just think you're deep in worship if you say Jesus out loud. So it's always a safe guess. But yes, the, the king of this particular kingdom is Jesus. Jesus in the biblical narrative is the king. In fact, that's exactly what the word Christ means. I think a lot of people assume that Christ is like Jesus' last name, like Mr. Christ or something like that. It's actually not. The, The word Christ is a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, which is a way of saying anointed king. So when we say Jesus Christ, at least in the literal sense, not like when you stub your toe sense, but when you say it in the literal sense, what you are saying when you say Jesus Christ is you are saying King Jesus. That's what that means. We are proclaiming that Jesus is some type of king over a particular kingdom, which all leads to the question, what is this kingdom that he is king over? So the kingdom is the language used in the Bible to talk about God's rule and God's reign. That's generally what it means, most literally. It's God's rule and God's reign. But obviously, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, he doesn't mean that he's bringing with him a literal crown and like scepter. It doesn't mean that he's drawing out literal geographical boundaries that he is king over, at least not in the short term. So in more modern terminology and sort of everyday lingo, we might say that the kingdom of God describes God's way of doing things in the world. The kingdom of God is God's way of doing things. So maybe this will help as sort of an analogy. Maybe it won't. we'll see here in a few minutes. Um, it might help to think about it like this. In the late 1990s, a company named Apple Computers was not doing well at all. They had just posted their worst financial quarter ever in the year 1997. Things were not great for them. But then something happened. Specifically, a person happened. Apple decided to hire back a man named Steve Jobs as their interim CEO, or was forced to hire him back, depending on how you read the events. And when he came back, he brought with him, Steve Jobs brought with him an entire way of doing things at Apple that was different from how they were doing things before. He had an eye for design, making Apple products not only work, but look beautiful. He also had an eye for making products enjoyable to use, fun even to use, He just thought about things differently. He had a different way of doing things. In fact, that was their slogan for a number of years when he came back, was the phrase think different. And largely because of Steve Jobs' way of doing things, because he brought with him a certain way of doing things, within the next four years, Apple did remarkably well as a company. They would debut both the iMac and the iPod, two of the most successful product launches of all time. Today, Apple is one of the most successful companies of all time. It was just announced last week that Tim Cook, Apple's current CEO, is now officially a billionaire. So Steve Jobs' arrival on the scene back in the late 1990s and his way of doing things made things significantly better as a result of him being there. Using biblical language, he came to enact a type of kingdom. He came to enact a certain way of doing things that was set into motion by the way he thought and the way he acted. And the kingdom of God is like that in a way, but it is far more than a company that sells products. It is a place and a community and a state of existence where God's will is always done, where what God wants to happen is what happens. Put as simply as I can, there are places in our world right now where things are not as God intended them to be. Can we at least all agree on that much? When people do not have access to food or safe drinking water, that is not as God intended things to be. When children are taken from their homes and exploited, that is not as God intended things to be. When crime runs rampant in cities and when some police officers become a part of that crime rather than protectors against it, that is not as God intended his world to be. And we could go on with a multitude of different examples, but there are so many places in our world right now as we speak where God's will is not being done. There are places and situations where God's way of doing things is not a reality at all. Which is why in places like Matthew 6, Jesus is going to tell his people, his followers, to pray for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done. That would imply that there are times and places right now where God's kingdom has yet to come and where God's will has yet to be done. Is everybody with me on all of that so far? Okay, so the book of Matthew, in large part, is about how Jesus came precisely into those types of broken situations, and how he came in order to proclaim and to set into motion God's way of doing things in the world. And therefore, about how you and I, as followers of Jesus, become active participants in God's kingdom. How you and I participate in bringing about God's kingdom to bear in all sorts of different ways in our everyday lives. Ultimately, what is best for us individually and what is best for the world at large is for God's kingdom to come in its fullness. That's what we want. And Matthew wants to describe for us what that looks like and how that happens exactly. That, in many ways, is what the book of Matthew is all about. But in order for that to become a reality, in order for God's kingdom to come through us, in order for us to be participants in that reality, we have to first be a part of the kingdom ourselves, right? We can't bring about God's kingdom in the world if we are not a part of that kingdom in the first place. And today's passage is actually about that. How does a person enter and become a part of of God's kingdom in the first place. So let's find out more starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Are you guys ready for the Gospel of Matthew? I'm not gonna lie, I was hoping for a little more excitement, but we'll roll with it. Maybe the excitement will increase as we go through this series. So Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist, now just for clarity, that's a description of what he was doing, not of a church denomination that he belonged to. Everybody clear on that? Sometimes you just got to squash that weird denominational pride when you get a chance, right? So we might say John the Baptist or John the Baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven, there's our central idea, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you like to circle or underline things in your Bible, circle or underline that word repent there in verse 2. That's central to understanding what's going on in this passage, that word repent. In John's mind, apparently, the fact that the kingdom is arriving on the scene, the kingdom of God is coming, means that we need to repent. We're going to come back around to what repent means here in just a bit. But first, let's hear about who this John the Baptist is and what type of person he is. And I just want to forewarn you, at least to us today, it's a bit odd. Verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, and this is a quote from the book of Isaiah in the Bible, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. You know, like you do, eat locust and wild honey. Okay, so some of us just read that and we're like, he wore what? He ate What? So there's a lot in this passage that just seems very strange to us, and that's because Matthew, the author, is referencing some things in the Old Testament that his audience at the time was very familiar with, but most of us are not as familiar with today. So John's particular outfit, the the way he dresses, is a reference to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And in another book, the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, there is a prophecy about how before the Messiah comes and before God's kingdom comes, he is going to send Elijah, or we might read that as a person like Elijah, who seems like Elijah, in order to prepare the nation of Israel for this kingdom. So Matthew includes all these details about what John was wearing and and the types of things that he said and and the types of things that he ate. He includes all these details in order to say to his audience, hey, this is the guy. This is who you've been waiting for. This is who the Old Testament scriptures told you was going to arrive on the scene right before the kingdom of God arrived, which actually explains a lot of what happens next in the passage because look at verse 5 with me. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, meaning they were going out to where John was, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So think about this for just a second. If John was just some eccentric guy in the wilderness, as you and I might be inclined to think people would not be going out to him by the dozens, by the hundreds, in order to be baptized by him, right? Like if there's some strange guy out in the woods behind your house yelling out repent as loud as he can, you just call the authorities and go on about your life, right? You certainly don't go out in the woods where he is and go, I would like for you to dunk me underwater real quick. That sounds like a wise decision. You don't do that, But yet, when that is what happens with John the Baptist, people come out by the dozens and want to be baptized by him. So what's going on here? What would sort of prompt that sort of response to a guy like John the Baptist? Well, again, it's because from their perspective, John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness meant it was go time for the kingdom of God. If this guy who resembled Elijah was preaching about the coming kingdom, that meant that God and his kingdom were going to arrive any day now. And they wanted to make sure that they were ready. And the way that they prepared themselves, the way that they made sure they were ready, was that they needed to repent. Now, let's talk for just a bit about this word repent. Because my guess is that at least for a lot of people, the word repent does not have the best of connotations. For some, the word repent might conjure up images of a stern pastor behind a big pulpit pointing his bony finger at people as he tells them to stop doing something, right? Or maybe a guy in Market Square standing on top of a milk crate with like big sign with big red block letters that says repent. That's what I think a lot of people think of when they hear this word in the Bible, repent. But just like we do with any word or any phrase in the Bible, we want to examine it not for what it's come to mean in our society, but for what it meant to its original audience. What did they think the word repent meant back then? So the word repent here in Matthew chapter three in Greek is the word metanoeo, and most literally it means to change your mind about something. But it doesn't just mean to change your mind about anything. So you wouldn't use the word metanoeo to like talk about how you were going to get Zaxby's for lunch and you changed your mind and decided to get Chick-fil-A. Even though that's a very important decision and it's the correct decision, that's not exactly what the word would refer to. Usually, at least in the Bible, metanoeo means changing your mind about something significant. It means to change your mind about the way you go about life in general and how you go about significant major portions of your life. That's what the word means. So repentance carries the connotation of not just thinking differently about something, but actually adjusting your life to be in line with that new type of thinking. So we might say repentance is a shift in your thinking that leads to a shift in the very fabric of your life as a result. That's what repentance is. It's a shift in your thinking that leads to a shift in your way of life. That's what the scriptures are saying that you and I need in order to enter, in order to be a part of the kingdom of God. We need to repent. In other words, we must be willing to reconsider the way we think from the ground up and then reconsider the way that we approach our life as a result. Now, at this point in the narrative, Matthew nor John specifically say what we are supposed to change our mind to. That, in many ways, is what the rest of the book, specifically chapters 5 through 7, is all about. But at this point, it is clear that entering the kingdom of God, being a part of the kingdom of God, will require this repentance. Now, I think most of us would agree that there are some people in our world who very much need to repent. I think we see a lot of people living what we would consider to be very overt, very obviously sinful, destructive lifestyles, and we all pretty much agree, yeah, those people need to repent. So Charlie Sheen needs to repent, right? Or uh, Joe Exotic, needs to repent. Nickelback needs to stop making music immediately and also repent, right? Because there's something sinful about that kind of music still being made, I'm sure of it. But my point is that you and I at least get on some level how some types of people need to repent. We get it, it makes sense to us, it's logical. But what John does next in this passage seems to indicate that it's not just those types of people that need to repent. It's actually all of us. Everyone apparently needs to repent. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at verse 7 in our passage. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, now, real quickly, if anyone was ready for the coming kingdom of God, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the epitome of righteousness and morality. They embodied obedience to God and holiness, at least to most people. And yet, when these groups of people show up on the scene to see what's going on with John the Baptist, they get treated the same as everybody else, if not a little bit worse than everybody else. So keep reading with me, second half of verse 7. He said to them, you brood of vipers, just in case you were confused, not a compliment. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's our word again. That would seem to indicate that they were currently not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So evidently in John's mind, it's not just the people with stereotypical sinful lifestyles that need to repent it's actually these guys too the people that embodied obedience and holiness the people that everyone else looked up to they also need to rethink reapproach and reconsider everything about how they think about god and how they think about life their obedience and their morality does not exclude them from any of this That John is talking about. They too need to repent. No one gets to bypass repentance in God's kingdom. Now John, because he's smart, anticipates an objection that these groups of people might have to the things that he just said. Take a look at verse 9 with me. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, i.e. every person or group of people, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So a brief explainer on the phrase, we have Abraham as our father. Back then, far more than in American society today, people put a lot of stock in their upbringing, their their lineage, their family line, and specifically, Israelites knew that the line of Abraham, Abraham's family tree, was the line that God was going to bring his blessing to the world through. He was going to bring it through the line of Abraham. So John anticipates that after he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees to repent, that they might say to him, hey, enough with all this repentance talk. We come from the line of Abraham, we're actually all good. And he says, no, that's not how it works. He says, hey, God can make these rocks on the ground into children of Abraham. A wildly insulting thing to say to that crew. God can make these rocks on the ground into children for Abraham. In other words, your heritage, your upbringing, your family stock does not necessarily mean anything here at all. And they certainly don't exempt you from needing to repent like everybody else does. They do not give you a free pass on what everyone else is called to do in order to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we need to talk for a second. Because while you and I probably wouldn't respond to a message like John's message with the phrase, oh, but I come from the line of Abraham, while we probably wouldn't say that, we might still be tempted to respond with things that sound pretty similar to that. So things like, oh, I actually grew up in a Christian home, so I'm good. I'm all set. I don't think I actually need to repent, at least not the way you're saying it. Things like, oh, I actually made a decision one time when I was nine, and so I'm, I'm golden. Don't need to repent, thanks anyways, but I'm okay. Or things like, well, I'm actually a pretty good person to begin with. I don't do anything that's super obviously wrong, and so I, I'm actually okay on the whole repentance thing as well. I just don't have that much I need to repent of, if I'm honest. And just to be clear, all of those things can be great things. So it, it's great to grow up in a Christian home. That's fantastic. It's great to make a decision at a young age to follow Jesus. It's great to be a good person. But when those things become reasons, when they become excuses in your mind for why you don't need to repent in God's kingdom, you find yourself in exactly the same position as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, thinking that you're excluded from the need to repentance and being utterly deceived in thinking that. And Jesus would say to you too, I think, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And just one important clarification here on the idea of repentance in the Bible. For a follower of Jesus, repentance is not just a one-time thing that you do. So, sure, for, for all of us who follow Jesus, there was a moment when we, for the very first time, acknowledged that we had been thinking about things the wrong way in our life, and we made the decision to go about thinking about things in God's way. We might call that the moment of big R, repentance, right? That's, that's the moment of repentance. That is, there is one moment where that happens, but also, life as a follower of Jesus is marked by an even more regular, ongoing pattern of repentance, Jesus once said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The word daily would seem to indicate that this is something that should be happening more than once in our life on a daily or even hourly basis. So following Jesus is about ongoing repentance, not just one-time repentance. So with that said, I would just invite all of you to consider, if you're here today, if you're listening to this, is your life marked by regular, obvious, ongoing repentance? Is that a part of your life? John said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, meaning that if repentance is a regular thing in your life, there will be fruit, there will be evidence of that happening. So let me ask you, is there evidence in your life of regular repentance? Is there evidence, for example, that you are turning from the way the world around us teaches us to view our money and possessions, for example, and thinking about things differently than that? Is there evidence that you are turning from the way the world around us teaches us to approach sex and sexuality and choosing to approach all of that differently from the world around us? Is there evidence that you are turning from the way that our world teaches us to view those who are different than us, racially, politically, economically, and thinking about those people and approaching those people in relationship with those people differently from the world around us? Okay, how about your time? Is there evidence that you're thinking about your time, your schedule differently? How about your career? How about your marriage? How about your singleness? And we could go on and on with examples, right? But if you are a follower of Jesus, your life and significant parts of your life will be marked by the evidence of repentance. Now, hear me on this. Just for clarity's sake, evidence of repentance in your life is not the same thing as evidence of perfection. Those aren't the same thing. So your life being marked by repentance is not the same thing as people looking at you and going, oh wow, he's perfect, she's perfect. They never do anything wrong at all. In fact, it's quite different from perfection. If anything, being marked by repentance requires regularly acknowledging the things that you do wrong in order to repent of them, right? So changing your mind about something would assume that you were thinking wrongly about it in the first place. It even says it right here in our passage. When people came out to repent and be baptized by John in verse 6, it says that they came, quote, confessing their sins. In other words, acknowledging the things that they had done wrong. So repentance is not the same thing as moral perfection. In some ways, it's precisely the opposite. But it does mean that your life is marked by a continual setting and resetting on the way of Jesus. Now, I want you to keep reading because John is going to point us next to where the ability to do all of this, the ability to repent comes from. Picking it up in verse 11, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, the King, the Messiah himself is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's baptism, he says, is a baptism of repentance. It was simply intended to prepare people for the coming kingdom that was around the corner. But then John says that the king himself, Jesus, the Messiah, he will come and his baptism will consist of the Holy Spirit and of fire. So the Holy Spirit part here, we think, implies that when we follow Jesus, we are given not just the call to repent, but we are given the very Spirit of God that makes repentance possible. That's part of what we get when we decided to follow Jesus. He gives us the desire to actually repent. The Holy Spirit living within us opens our eyes to things that we need to repent of and then gives us the motivation and the power and the endurance and the courage to do it, to go through with that repentance. And the word fire here would seem to refer to the idea of refining fire, So if you don't know, for certain metals, the way that you purify them and make them more valuable is that you put them in intense heat or fire, which is a brand, and it burns away the dross, which is a brand new word that I learned in preparation for this teaching. I'm very proud of it. It burns away the dross on certain metals. That's what happens when you put metals in heat. And repeatedly in the New Testament, the authors use this burning away of dross on a certain type of metal as an image for how God refines us as followers of Jesus. That often, God will use adverse situations and difficulties and trials in our life to make us more and more like Jesus. And at times, it may actually be precisely those trials and those difficulties in life that provide opportunities for us to repent. They may reveal things for us to repent of that wouldn't have been revealed otherwise. So, God might use losing a job to expose that our identity had been too much in that job or our career. God might use a breakup to expose that our approach to romantic relationships wasn't all that healthy in the first place. Or God might use persecution or a loss of reputation of some sort to expose that we had an unhealthy obsession with what other people think of us, with their opinions of us. So listen, hear me out here. I'm not saying that every time something bad happens in your life, it's just a lesson to be learned. Sometimes life is just hard and the world is just broken. Sometimes that's true, but I am saying that there are times in our life when trials and difficulties aren't just things to get through, but also things that God can use to make us more like him, and I think it would do us some good to keep that in mind when those difficulties, when those trials inevitably come. Now, let's wrap up with verse 12, and as we do, the band can go ahead and come back up. Verse 12 says this. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So a winnowing fork was a tool that was used in Jesus' day to separate the usable portions of wheat from the unusable portions, the good from the bad. So the picture here is that there will be a clear distinction between those who are a part of God's coming kingdom and those who aren't. Matthew makes it clear that when the king comes, entrance into his kingdom will not be based on questions like, do you think of yourself as mostly a good person? It won't be based on questions like, did you make a one-time decision when you were nine? It won't be, did you mostly try to follow God's rules a good bit of the time? It won't be based on any of those things. Entrance into the kingdom of God will be based on whether or not your life was marked by repentance. That's how you enter the kingdom of God, through repenting. So I just wanna end a little bit differently today. Generally, we try to give you tons of specific things to think about and filters to run your life through to see what you need to do, how you need to wrestle with the teaching Today, especially in light of what John just said in those last few verses, I I wanna just allow the Spirit of God to do that work in our midst today. So if you will, I I would love for you to just go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. Once you do, I, I just have two questions I want you to pray through. Two questions for us to consider in light of what Jesus, in light of what Matthew just said through John, about what the kingdom is like. So with your head bowed, your eyes closed, let's start here. John chapter 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict us regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. So listen, there's a place for letting community speak into what we need to repent of. There's a place for letting the Bible speak into what we need to repent of. We are real big on both of those things here. But right now, in this moment, I want us to give the Holy Spirit space to speak to us about repentance. You can just ask him the simple question if you want. Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life right now that I need to repent of? Is there anything in my life that is inconsistent with the kingdom of God, with God's way of doing things? And if so, what would you have me do about that? So ask that question now. I'll give you a few moments just to listen for a response from the Spirit. Is there anything that I need to repent of today? Okay, next question, still with your head bowed, eyes closed, let's consider what John said about us being baptized with fire. So let me just ask you, what in your life right now is difficult? Where is life hard? Where do you feel like maybe in many ways you are being put through the furnace? And if the scriptures are true, that means there could be ways that God is using those types of circumstances to expose in you a need for repentance in regards to something. So with this one, what I want you to do is just ask the Spirit in this scenario, in this difficult circumstance of my life, is there anything that you would have me learn about you, God, or about myself? Is there anything you'd have me grow in? Is there anything you'd have me repent of. Spirit, are there things that aren't okay in my life that you are using these circumstances in order to expose? Ask him if that's happening and then let him speak to you anything he wants to speak. God, are you using circumstances, adverse circumstances in my life to expose a need for repentance? Ask him that question next. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Now we thank you for his voice, his specific voice into our life that, that encourages us, points us towards Jesus, and God, that sometimes exposes in us the need for repentance. I got to confess, um, just for myself, that I often do not slow down long enough to listen for that voice well. It's so easy to be busy with a million different things and forget the one most important thing, which is attuning ourselves to God's voice in our life. So God, if there are things that you have used this morning to to expose, to convict us of, to shine a spotlight on in our lives, things that we need to do something about, I pray that you would give us the desire and the courage to hear you out on those things, to hear and then to respond with repentance. God, we desire to be a part of your kingdom. We desire to bring about your kingdom in our everyday lives. And we know that the way to your kingdom is through repentance. So God, would you prompt and generate that repentance in us? We ask this in your name. Amen. So we're gonna move now into a time of response and celebration. Um, But before we do, I, I just wanted to read one other passage from the life of Jesus over us. There's a story in the Bible about a son who spent a lot of time in his life avoiding repentance and then one day decided to give it a shot for the very first time. And I just wanna read that part of the story over us before we worship to give us a picture of what you and I encounter when we decide to repent. So this is Luke chapter 15 from the message translation. It says, when the son was still a long way off, His father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his repentant speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We are going to feast We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to celebrate. Friends, this is what is waiting for us at the Father when we repent. I think one of the reasons that so many of us put off repentance for so long is that we think when we come back to the Father, what we're going to encounter is a stern rebuke. We're going to encounter a, well, glad you finally came back. Try not to mess up this time. I can't believe what you did, but I mean, it's good that you're back now. At least you did the right thing. Brothers and sisters, that's not who the Father is. That's not his posture towards us. That's not his attitude towards us. The Father is waiting with more grace than we have sinned. That's what the cross was all about. That's what the resurrection was all about, is that the Father is waiting. All that's left to do is turn and change our minds. And so I just want to invite you this morning, whether you do that for the first time ever or for the hundredth time in your life, would you come home? Would you encounter the love of the Father? He's waiting for you. All that's left to do is repent. So I'd love to invite you to stand and sing and celebrate with us the love of the Father together as we sing.